Welcome to the Beacon Broadcast from Beacon Baptist Church in Burlington, North Carolina, featuring expositional Bible teaching by Pastor Greg Barkman. If you'd like to correspond with the Beacon Broadcast, or if you wish to support this radio ministry, write to The Beacon Broadcast, Post Office Box 159, Alamance, North Carolina, 27201, or find us on the web at beaconbaptist.com beaconbaptist.com The Beacon Broadcast is supported in part by the gifts of faithful listeners. Now with today's message from God's Word, here is Greg Barkman. We began in the month of November studying the high priestly prayer of Jesus Christ in John chapter 17. It is rich. It is humbling. It is instructive. It is important, a significant portion of God's eternal word. And so we have been taking it carefully, as I say, starting in the month of November and then interrupted our study for a couple of weeks in December to focus upon the incarnation of Christ. And now back to the high priestly pair in John 17 in the month of January. And you may recall that the prayer, which takes up the entire 17th chapter of John, can be divided into three parts— First of all, Christ prays for himself in verses 1 through 5. Secondly, Christ prays for his apostles in verses 6 through 19. And third, Christ prays for all his people in verses 20 through 26. We have still been lingering in the first part where Jesus prays for himself. We will shortly move on to the second part where Jesus prays for his apostles, but We want to make sure that we understand the significance of Christ's prayer for himself. And you may recall that there are two petitions, one that begins this short section and one that concludes it. But in a sense, there's only one, because in both of these petitions, Christ prays that the Father may glorify him. But in the first one, he prays that the Father may glorify him in terms of the cross, and that is very puzzling at first glance. How could Christ be glorified by hanging upon the cross? But in fact, he can and will and was. (laughs) And we have already examined that. I'm just simply reviewing quickly. But then secondly, he prays that he might be glorified by being restored to his throne in heaven. The uh, The work of redemption, his life of perfect obedience, and his substitutionary death upon the cross being completed, his resurrection from the dead, now also an accomplished fact to demonstrate that he was everything he claimed to be and that his work in on earth and death upon the cross is approved by the Father, and so the Father raises him from the dead to a glorified body, this body of humiliation, this body of incarnation that he took upon himself for the work of redemption, 
is now glorified with a post-resurrection body that is suited for heaven. And so he ascends back to heaven in this body. He ascends back to heaven as a man. When he came to earth, he didn't come that way. He didn't leave heaven as a man and come to earth as a man. He left heaven as the the um, invisible God, the spirit God, and was encapsulated in the verge of a woman, uh, of, a, of a virgin, in the, in the womb of a virgin, by way of the incarnation. He was planted in the womb of a virgin, a virgin conception. And that's when his humanity began. And it developed in all the ways that our humanity developed. And he lived a full life upon the earth, but the only human being never to sin in all of his life upon the earth. And then he died a substitutionary death upon the cross to die in the place of sinners who deserve that death, but those who trust in him will have his death counted for their their deserved condemnation, their deserved judgment, punishment because of sins. And so he freely gives that. He gives his, his earned righteousness by perfect obedience and his, his um, payment for, for the guilt of the sinner. He freely gives that to all who trust in him and then ascends back to heaven in a glorified body and will forever be in heaven as a man. It's, it's a mysterious thing. I, I know I've said some of these things before, but I really have trouble getting past this. This is so amazing. But I pause and welcome you to this Sunday, January 14 edition of the Beacon Broadcast. Thank you for joining us today, and thank you for your financial gifts that make it possible for us to broadcast on this station. So looking again very quickly at the two petitions that I've already made reference to, the first one in verse 1, Father, the hour has come, glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you. That's with the cross in view. And then verse 5, and now, O Father, Glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. And that's with the ascension and enthronement in view. And so these two petitions to glorify your Son, O Heavenly Father, and to do so in the way that brings glory both to the Son and to the Father, a glory that is seen in his death upon the cross and a glory that is seen in his ascension and enthronement back in heaven. And what are the reasons to support these petitions? And we've been working our way through those, and that's where I catch us up to where we resume today. But you recall that one reason to support the petition is that The divinely appointed time has come, so therefore, O Heavenly Father, grant this petition. It's the time that is right for it. It is the time that you have ordained for it. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you. The second reason that undergirds these petitions is the divinely appointed purpose. To glorify the Father 
in verses 1 and 4. And then to, well, that, that's, those are the petitions, to glorify the Father. First in his work upon the cross or his death upon the cross, the Father is glorified in that. And then in his ascension back to heaven, his resurrection from the grave and his ascension back to heaven, the Father is glorified in that. And then finally, the petition that undergirds, or the, the fact, the, the purpose, the reason that undergirds these petitions is the divinely appointed work in verse 2. And that's where we left off last time. As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him, and this is eternal life, that they may believe, or that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. The divinely appointed work has been accomplished. This is what you sent me for. I came from heaven to do exactly this, this divinely appointed task. I have now completed that task. Verse 4, I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And so what is the divinely appointed task that Christ has accomplished at the Father's direction, according to the Father's will, in obedience to his heavenly Father? It is to save sinners. Back to verse 2. As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. So his divinely appointed work is to save sinners. His divinely appointed work is the work of redemption, redeeming sinners out of their condition of slavery to sin. His divinely appointed work is salvation. His divinely appointed work is to secure the redemption of the elect. That's referred to in verse 2. As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. This doctrine of election which many stumble over. And I understand that because I stumbled over it. I didn't grow up in a context where the doctrine of election was taught and was treasured. And so I had many of the, what should I say, the, um, the arguments against the doctrine of election as it is taught in Scripture that many people have. So I understand the problem that many people have with this, but <laughs> I don't see how you can can continue to have a problem with it. I don't see how you can continue to resist it, to oppose it, or to, to explain it away, which is the way it is usually done. It's anyone who studies his Bible has to acknowledge that there are many references in the Bible to God choosing his people. And even the word elect or election itself is found many times in the Bible. So you can't you can't pretend it's not there. Many people, I think, would like to, but you can't pretend it's not there, so what are you going to do with it? Well, if you're reluctant to believe it for at face value for what it says, then you try to find some way to explain it away, which in essence means that 
Yes, it seems to mean what it says, but it doesn't really mean what it says. I know, I know. I, I used to be there, I know. But just look at this verse again. As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he, Christ, should give eternal life to whom? That he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. Now, there are other ways that statement could be made, which would be equally true. You have given eternal life to as many as have believed. I have given eternal life. When he says he, he's referring to himself in the third person. You have given him, Christ, authority over all flesh, that he, Christ, should give eternal life to... And what could we fill in that space if we didn't know what it said? What we could fill in to as many as have believed in him in similar language. But that's not what this particular statement says. You can find other statements that say that, and they are true. There's no contradiction here. Those who believe in election don't try to explain away the verses that say, whosoever believes in him... Everyone who believes in him will receive eternal life. But there's a truth behind that truth, and that's the one that's stated here, that he should give eternal life to to whom? To as many as you have given him. The Father has given a particular people to his Son. He promised those to his Son. He gave them to his Son. He gave them to his Son before the Son came to earth to accomplish this work. So now the Son says to the Father, I have done what you commissioned me to do. I have given eternal life to as many as you have given me. To all those that you have given me, I have now accomplished their redemption upon the cross. Well, you say it it only takes effect when they believe in him, and that's true. Takes us back to the faith part again. That's true. But the work has been done, and what remains to be done is to bring every one of those elect ones to faith in Christ. And over time, I mean, the majority of those that the Father had given to the Son hadn't even been born yet when Christ made this statement. But nevertheless, they were people that God the Father had given to the Son. You have given him authority over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And I remind you that references to this body of people who have been given to the Son by the Father generally describe that as a large number. Here the term is as many as. There the emphasis upon Largeness may not be quite as strong as it, if it is, as it is in other passages, but here it is as many as. Now, it's also true that there are certain passages that seem to emphasize the smallness of the number. And that, too, could be confusing, and critics, of course, would insist that that must be contradictory. But it's not. So how many people are there going to be in heaven in proportion to as many as are in hell. Well, 
nobody knows except God the Father. Nobody knows how many are the elect people of God. But it's possible, biblically possible, that there may be more souls in heaven than in hell when all is said and done. You say, how could that possibly be? Straight is the gate and narrow is the way that leads to eternal life, and few there be that find it. Broad is the path, and wide is the gate that lead to destruction, and many there be that go in thereat. Yes, that is true. And that, and, and we can see that. We can observe that around us. True believers in the Lord Jesus Christ are generally a minority in any community. They are in my community. I don't know where you live, but they are in my community. There are more who are who give evidence of, of unbelief. Some might profess to believe, but who give, give evidence of unbelief, and there are those who give evidence of true saving faith. I saw a statement the other day that I thought was rather noteworthy and something that ought, we ought to think about, but it's absolutely true. And it was something like this. I can't remember the exact statement because I didn't write it down and bring it to the microphone with me. It just comes to mind at this point in what I'm trying to say. But it said something like this. Why, if, if, if the world has your heart now, why do you think that when you die, you're going to heaven? And then it followed it up by saying something like this. When you die, your relationship with God is going to be exactly the same as it was before you died. And think about that for a minute and expand upon that for a minute. If now your relationship with God or with Jesus Christ is a casual one, it may be a professed one, it may, there may be a certain amount of religion in your life, but frankly, what you are interested in is not in your relationship with God. That's really low on your, on your list of priorities, as is evident in many ways. What you're really interested in are the things of this world. That's what you live for. That's what you prioritize. That's what you focus most of your attention and your, your interest in. And your relationship with God is, frankly, a, a very a very trivial matter out of the whole the whole um, package of what what you give attention to in this world that doesn't seem like you have a very strong relationship with God your relationship with God when you die is going to be exactly the same your relationship with God after you die is going to be exactly same the same as your relationship before you die if your relationship after you die is the same as your relationship before you die, then for some of you, it's not going to be much of a relationship. Will it be enough of a relationship to get you into heaven? You better think about that. Well, I move on. We're back to this subject of election and, and, the, and the number of the elect. I don't know. I do know. I do know this. I, don't, I can't tell you how many there are and what the proportion will be. Will there be more in heaven than in hell? Will there be more in hell than in heaven? I can't tell you that. But the very fact that I have suggested the possibility that there might be more in heaven certainly has, has no doubt surprised some of you and caused you to, to want to hear my explanation of how that could be possible. And before I do that, I will say that some of the best-known 
teachers and theologians of the past have believed exactly that. I, I remember how I was surprised and encouraged when I read a statement by Charles Spurgeon, probably in one of his sermons. I can't tell you where I read it. In my earlier years, I, I read literally hundreds of Spurgeon's sermons. They were such a help and blessing to me. And I can't remember exactly where I read this. He, he said so many things. I mean, really. I mean, really. And so many good things. But he said he thinks there's going to be more in heaven than in hell, that even in the division of, of souls, that God is not going to allow the devil to outscore him or something to that effect. And some more, more prominent theologians, I don't know if you consider Spurgeon a theologian or not, for a pastor, he comes about as close to it as anyone I know, but some theologians have, have said something similar, and I won't try to name any at the moment because I might, I've got a name in mind, but I also know that there are two theologians related to one another with this same last name, and I'm not sure which one of the two this this is, so I won't, I won't say so. But as a possible explanation, now you're Still wondering how this could be. Spurgeon, as I recall, seemed to relate this to the high infant mortality rate in his day. That there were so many children that died at birth or very early in life who didn't survive early childhood infancy. So that, and he believed that all of these were elect people that the father had given to the son, that any child who died in childhood or infancy, toddlerhood, whatever you want to consider it, was in heaven, safely in heaven. And because of the high infant mortality rate of his day, he felt that there would be more souls in heaven than in hell. And again, as you read the lives of some of these people in, in days before modern medicine, you realize that it was not uncommon for people to have more children who died than survived. If a family had, if, if a mother had given birth to 10 children, it would not be at all unusual for maybe three of them to survive to adulthood and seven of them to die long before they reached adulthood and maybe even the majority of them in infancy. Today, we have modern medicine, so the infant mortality rate is not nearly as high, but what do we have? We have abortion, which takes the lives of so many, many, many children who have life. They are living human beings in the womb. They have souls. They are living human beings. They are the souls of human beings in the womb. And their life is cut short exceedingly early. Not dying in childbirth, but dying even before a normal birth. And again, I can't say, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not pronouncing this to be true. I'm saying that it is possible 
that through this means, through this terrible scourge of abortion, one of the worst things that has ever taken place in this world is the common practice and defense of and insistence upon and support for and legalization of, of the killing of humans in the womb. Usually by the same people who think it's terrible if you kill children. Shame on Israel going into Gaza and in the process of defending itself against the soldiers and against Hamas, uh, killing innocent children. Why? That's terrible, 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 terrible by people who defend the slaughter of innocent children in the womb all the time. Then the, the, the focus shifts. It's not the focus isn't upon the baby, which everybody who looks at the baby in the womb, who sees the sonographs, who, who sees these pictures, everybody who sees this knows this is a human baby. But now the emphasis shifts away from the human baby to the uh, mother's right to choose. Nobody's going to tell me what I have to do with my own body. Well, anyway, that's another discussion for another day. But is it possible that this practice, which is so sinful, so evil, so murderous, so, so much an evidence of man's depravity, could turn out to be the mechanism that God uses to make sure that the population in heaven is greater than the population in hell. Wouldn't it be, I, I'm not saying that this is the case, I'm just saying speculating is a possibility, but wouldn't it be just like God to take something which is so terribly sinful and horrible and turn it into something that is so marvelous and wonderful? Well, that's what he did on the cross, didn't he? That's what we're dealing with here. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you because the hour has come. That is the hour of his death upon the cross. And so we can look at the cross in one way and say this is one of, if not the most, I would have to say the most sinful, shameful, horrible act of, of rebellion and sin against God that has ever happened in this world. And yet that very sinful, shameful rebellious act turned into the most glorious event that has ever happened in her world's history. And it is because of that that multiplied millions of people are, will be in heaven, people that the Father gave to the Son. And I see a possibility of that in, in, in abortion because I see a possibility of a, of a parallel there. One of the most horrible things that humanity has ever embraced, the killing of innocent children in the womb, is turned by the power and wisdom of God into one of the most glorious things that many of these children, if they had been born, would be born into a family, into a country, into a climate, into a culture where it is unlikely that they would ever hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. But by being taken in this barbaric act from their mother's womb, they are safely home in heaven because they are some of the elect for whom Christ died and 
secured their redemption because they had been given to him by the Father. As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. Now I'll have to stop at that point, number one, because we're running out of time, and number two, because I have moved into areas of speculation today, and I can't I can't be dogmatic about these things. I'm just raising them as possibilities. But I want, to want, want you to understand that the doctrine of election is a glorious truth. But we will lay that aside when we come back to this same passage next week. And I invite you to join me then. And until then, this is Greg Barkman, Bible teacher on the Beacon broadcast, Post Office Box 159. Alamance, North Carolina, 27201, saying good day. May God give you his eternal peace.